Hello and welcome to the Folk Music Podcast. My name is Anders and before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you that you can follow the show on social media to get the latest news and various bonus content. We're currently on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. And if you have any thoughts about what you would like to see more of on one of these platforms in the future, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I always love hearing from you guys, so please send us an email or contact us via one of these platforms. Thanks for listening to the show. Today's guest is Martin Green, who is a musician that I've been following and admiring for many years, both as a member of the band Lau and as a composer and a solo artist. I had a great time chatting with Martin, and we touched on a number of different topics, including uh, what defines folk music for different people, uh, creative techniques, band politics, approaching a band as a full-time gig, um, the current state of the music industry, and loads of other things. Now, this episode is on the longer side, but it's all very interesting stuff, I think. Uh, Martin has a lot of great insight into these things, and I'm sure you'll find it valuable as well. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Martin Green. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Martin Green. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hello, nice to be here. So, I thought I'd start uh, this episode off with a little story. <laughs> um, because, uh, as you and uh, many of the listeners will know, I'm um, Norwegian, spent most of my life here. But I did live uh, for a couple of years in Ireland, on the west coast, in a city called Galway. Great place. And uh, at the time, this is about almost 10 years ago, uh, at the time I didn't, I wasn't too familiar with uh, the Irish and the Scottish trad scene. I was fairly like new in that musical genre. And at some point, one of my friends invited me to go to a concert with a band called Lau, who were playing down at a venue called the Roshin Do. Uh, and he told me that they were doing something slightly different or experimental even. And I was very skeptical because I was a, bit of a traditionalist at the time. Um, and I went down to the gig and uh, was totally blown away uh, because this was something I'd uh, really never ever heard anything like it. Um, at, at the outset, it looked like a traditional folk trio with a uh, guitar, uh, fiddle and accordion. But uh, And this was obviously you um, on the accordion, Chris River on, on the, um, the guitar and vocals and Aidan O'Rourke on the fiddle. And you guys were doing things that, ha- that I had never experienced before in the folk context. Uh, I mean, I was coming from a background as a jazz musician myself, so I was familiar with like effect pedals, and uh, I even played uh, the Hammond organ and keyboards myself, but you actually had uh, your accordion hooked up to a Leslie speaker, I remember. Uh, or maybe I just dreamed, th- dreamed this up. No, but no, that's, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's respect, man, holding that stuff um, around. <laughs> But that really blew my oh, can you actually do that uh, and still call it folk music? Uh, and I think you even had like a, a Wurlitzer piano on your right side. So you were kind of mixing, playing the accordion and the Wurlitzer. And, and you guys were like the music was to me, it's, it still sounded like folk music, but you were using uh, elements that I knew from pop music with like chord progressions and also more experimental uh, stuff with like pedals and, um, and dissonant harmonies and uh, and using rhythms and stuff which weren't really that common in trad but still it sounded like a folk band um, and um, and this is 10 years ago so I'd say I, I hear that sound in a lot of other bands uh, these days but that really opened my um, my mind to that world of sort of <laughs> experimental fo- or like folk music in um, in a bigger context so um, yeah this is 10 years ago so that, that's when I got uh, was first got familiar with uh, you and the band and since then I've followed your various releases and also your um, your solo career as a composer which I find very interesting and um, innovative you seem to like constantly be pushing the boundaries so um, yeah it was a very long introduction there but um, uh, why don't you uh, before we get into the stuff that I would like to talk about just give us a brief uh, introduction to your musical background and like where you're coming from for the people not familiar yeah, with sure. your work. Uh, so I'm from England. I grew up in Cambridge, which is just outside London. And my dad was a Morris dancer. I don't know if you know Morris dancers, like an English traditional folk dance. And I so I took up the accordion uh, when I was 10 to play for Morris dancing. And when I reached my teens... 
I was playing in Cayley bands and there's a lot of Irish music in Cayley. There's a lot of Irish music in, in England in general. But at that point, which would be the early 90s, there was a lot of Irish music in Cambridge and that that was what there was to play, really. There wasn't... Uh, English sessions didn't really exist and uh, and the Irish music was fast and exciting and mm. and you got free drink and it also seemed <laughs> to fit... It didn't... Because they were Irish pubs, there, there was a... It was partly because they were building motorways at that point, so there were a lot of people that had come to work on motorways living in living in Cambridge and so there was a, a real Irish population so it didn't feel contrived it felt like a quite a living thing to play Irish music in these Irish pubs and and as I'm sure you know if you've been in those sorts of pubs in England you, you sort of are in Ireland you know once once you're in those places and and I loved all that it, and it's not it's not in my you know my family isn't Irish but I I started living a life of Irish music um, when I was about fourteen, and and uh, so that that I always think of that as my starting point. Really, I then went on to play quite a lot of English music, but that sort of came second. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that was my that was my starting point. Played in lots of sessions, but I think uh, my accordion teacher had a lot to do with why I play the piano accordion. It, which it is a bit of an anomaly in, in the first place was because there happened to be a piano accordion player in my dad's Morris team. I don't know why he played the piano accordion. That's also unusual for those teams. Mm. Um, and the only teacher in Cambridge who was, is the most wonderful man was a classical accordionist. He played a lot of French music and he played a lot of classical music and, and a bit of sort of swing jazz and gypsy jazz. So I had quite classical technique in, in my lessons. Um, but I would bring him Irish tunes. He was a great man for teaching technique without teaching style, which I think is a wonderful thing in a teacher. Uh, if you can encourage your students to play the music that they're excited by, but give them the tools in terms of technique to do it. So, so I would he, bring him so Irish. He, 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 so he kind of taught you the, how to play the accordion and the technique and stuff, and you figure out the Irish tunes from the sessions? Is that kind of That's how right, yeah. I and would... I would bring him tapes of Karen Tweed or... Or Donald Shaw was a big influence, Capacaley in the early 90s. Um, mm. And uh, Karen Tweed was a really big one because she was around. Like I would, she would gig in Cambridge a couple of times a year. So I would just follow her around going, teach me, teach me. And yeah. she, <laughs> she still hasn't to this day. But um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, I, I actually had her on the show last week. Oh, lovely. So you're, you're the second uh, piano accordion player on this show. Uh, which is about time because I mean I'm a piano accordion player myself, so um, yeah. Yeah, and there you go. And you know it has a funny place in Irish music, and uh, and yes. people aren't always happy to see it arrive at a session. But everybody loves Tweed, and they're right to, and that that helped because there was a model there of of tasteful piano accordion play or piano accordion that that fitted with my tastes. Um, mm. I I'm a frustrated. I think I'm a frustrated concertina player, to be honest. You know, <laughs> what, um, what do you mean by that? Uh, that stylistically, I, I feel I play the piano accordion because that's what I took up, and it has enormous uh, scope. It has huge range because it has the left hand, really. And it, but if, but in terms of how I would love to play tunes with my right, how I would love to play Irish music with my right hand, I w I would love to be Mihal O'Reilly. Yeah, like that, I, that's what I, I love. You know, I, I think I know what you mean. Like, there's some or specific ornaments that I do on the piano accordion that I hear in the concertina. Um, I'm not sure if I can describe exactly uh, some uh, some kind of uh, yeah diatonic trills or something like that that I that I really it's it's not a conscious thing. I just realize I, I I'm doing it, and I realize that it sounds a bit like what the concertina player would do. I think I don't play the concertina, right. but that's how it sounds to me. <laughs> yeah, I I think part of it is to do with the push pull that yeah. our bellows work in such a different way that we lose a huge amount of the rhythm that goes into button box playing and goes into concertina playing. Um, some of which I attempt to put back in, but that but there's no need to. 
You know, no. you don't have to keep pushing in and out. Um, but I, I sort of try to. Um, Tweed doesn't go in and out much. She does it all with the hand, I think. Um, yeah. She also had a classical teacher, I think. She had a classical teacher and a button box teacher, I think. Uh, her technique is flawless. You know, it's really good. So. Um, yeah, she really has, has her own uh, own style, like definitely. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, um, I mean, where did the, obviously your your musical style and and taste is is influenced from lots of other types of music than just Irish? So where did all that come from? Yeah. So, well, my family are all musical, but but they don't really play Irish music. So my parents play a lot of baroque music. Um, and quite and a lot of early music and Renaissance music, so that um, which is not something I've ever done, but I've heard a lot of it, and it also leads to conversations about composers. I think I was aware of composers as a as a concept because of that, if you know what I mean. You know that people write music, sure. um, and my brother, my older brother, is a, an electroacoustic composer, a very experimental man. Um, and in a way, he, it's like half my influence comes from him. He's a sort of funnel of, of all of his influences that I get condensed through one meeting point, if that makes sense. So he's gone and absorbed all these things that, that I haven't really had much to do with in free music and serial composition or, or whatever it is. And I get them all through this one immediate source, um, but also this idea of searching for things you haven't heard before is the basis of his ethos. And I've always found that quite inspiring. And it, it, I suppose I didn't feel that that was impossible within the boundaries of folk music. Like uh, Returning to something you said earlier about what defines folk music, I think uh, some of it is just to do with lifestyle. If you, And I think the same is true of jazz musicians. You know, There are a lot of jazz musicians that play all sorts of other things and some of them self-identify as jazzers. Yeah, and I, what do you mean? I, um, and I think it, it partly feels, it's about where you feel you paid your dues to start with. And I suppose like my 10,000 hours went into Irish music. So I mm. feel that's that's my kind of basis. Um, it's, it's quite interesting, I find, at least on the Norwegian scene, you have a lot of the classical musicians and the jazz musicians, the younger ones today, they... They play music that sound very similar, you know. Maybe the same is true in the folk scene. That if you, as you said, you paid your dues in, say, Irish music or uh, or learning the hardanger fiddle, and then you go on to play a type of music or create your own music, which is very very different from whatever you started in. You you still kind of belong to that world, and you you still play the folk festivals, you still play the folk venues. Um, I don't know. That that kind of resonated yeah. with me anyway. Yeah, and I th I think how you put your music together um, is, you know, when you meet up with other people, what do you do? Do you set a jam and have a session, or, um, or do you not? That's one of the big things. You know, I think one of the things that I notice is is how little jamming and sessioning goes on in other sorts of music, even in jazz, which I always find very sad. You know, I, I don't yeah. see. I see the kind of organised jam sessions that have an audience at jazz festivals, and people kind of take it in turns to go and and blow with a rhythm section. But I don't see them sitting in the pub, or sitting. You know, folkies sit anywhere. They sit in a corridor. They sit in a bus stop. You know, why, um, why, 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 why do you think that is? Um, because I think jazz started as a performance art, and and folk music started as a party activity. <laughs> so. Um, Although I'm, and I, and I think that I would assume it's different in when you get back to to blues and and that point of African American music. I think that might be different, but I think jazz was born in clubs, and so it's always been a a, a, a public facing form. Mm. Whereas the you know the Kayleys that used to happen before pubs were such a big thing, this music took place in people's houses and it took place in a circle. Where the musicians face each other, they don't. They didn't face an audience, and it's a relatively new thing that folk musicians would get on a stage, um, unless they were going to play for dancing. Sure. Uh, so, 
Um, yeah, I think, I th- and I'm so delighted that that still exists. And having not, obviously, like everybody else, not really been to a festival for a year and a half, Lau had their first one recently in Collinsy, which is such a brilliant festival. Um, mm. And there was so it, it was it was nonstop tunes. It, it was fantastic, and it was really uh, I hadn't realised how much I'd missed it, um, and how important it is. You know, I kind of knew a. I knew I missed the gigs, uh, but actually one of the wonderful things about folk musicians is is that the bands all end up in the same places playing together afterwards. And I think that might be unique. Um, I hope it's not. I hope there are styles of music I don't know about where people also do that, but I I see less of it in in other festivals, you know. And and if I go to electronic music festivals, that's not even a possibility for those people. You know, no. you do your set with all your equi- equipment's awful. You know, it's mm. a terrible thing. It needs electricity, and you have to set it up. And um, because we play these old-fashioned, kind of archaic instruments that uh, that predate electricity, that we're portable, and I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that draw me to folk music in the first place, and I guess many other people coming discovering the genre the fact that you can just sit down and instantly make music uh with sometimes without even knowing the people playing and you kind of get to know each other through the music which is a wonderful thing and much harder to do in the jazz world and and other genres as you were saying yeah it's a very social form of music it's sort of mind blowing and and i can occasionally i i end up in in a session with somebody that's never seen that especially a musician that's never seen it, it is mind-blowing because you, you'll have people sit and play in perfect unison for five hours with somebody yeah. they've never met. Actually, that is kind of incredible. It is. Um, and, oh, that's all right. It's a small keyboard just fell to the floor. Not um, <laughs> Speaking of equipment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, so, but uh, when we're at the topic of folk music... Um, that's one way of defining it, like, uh, or how you, how you identify, like, based on where you're coming from. But I also found find the the term folk music to be interesting because I'm not, not sure how familiar you are you are with the Scandinavian languages, but in our world, uh, folk music or folk music has a much more narrow scope. We use it kind of like you would use traditional music, I suppose. So. Uh, we would never call Bob Dylan a folk singer in in the Norwegian language. Uh, I don't even sure what we would call him, like a, a pop singer maybe. Uh, whereas in the English or and the American tradition, folk is basically everything from uh, Bob Dylan to Martin Hayes to uh, um, Astor Piazzolla. Almost like it's, I mean, it's. Um, um, do, you, do you think is is that unique to the yeah, that, Anglo-American that... kind of uh, tradition? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I think when I can understand why the people in the sixties uh, called it a folk revival because people like Bob Dylan were interested in revisiting traditional songs that hadn't been sung very much, and some of them, you know. Are, Martin Carthy or uh, Andy Irvine or whatever, that those people carried on mostly singing traditional songs. Some of them started writing their own songs and accompanying them on guitar. And and at that point, is it folk music? It, it's a good question. And I, I have, I'm often surprised when people uh, that play what seems to me to be acoustic pop music describe it as folk music because yeah. it feels to me that that they they don't necessarily have an interest in in traditional music um and so but i also kind of feel quite strongly that that people should be able to appropriate any of these terms and it is up it's up to us to decide whether we agree with how how they define themselves but but um but is, is it problematic to have such a broad definition of it, it, folk music does, 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 does it stop to mean anything in 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 my life, I have 
In the 90s, we called stuff folk music for a bit, and then that seemed to be very uncool. And so we started saying traditional music. Yeah. And then when when it got to Lao, we went back to folk music and decided we didn't really care um, what defined it. And I I think uh, the same is true of traditional you know, and, and can you have contemporary traditional anything? <laughs> yeah. You know, is that not a paradox? Um, and so I, I think it, it, I don't think it's problematic. There was a, for a while when there was a funny little sort of folk rock thing that went on in, in certainly in the UK. We had Mumford and Sons and Laura yeah. Marling and, and, and people would ask us a lot in interviews well, I think they wanted us to say we hated Mumford and Sons, uh, <laughs> which I'm happy enough to say now at this point. But uh, but at the time, it felt a bit childish and petulant, and and kind of like, no, we're not going to get into saying we don't think other people can use the word folk just because of the way we were brought up. Because otherwise, it will it will event the whole thing dies out if you're not as inclusive as possible. Um, and actually. If more people come to Lao gigs because of Mumford and Sons, that's in everybody's interest that we're using the well, it's in Lao's interest that we're using the same word. So um, it's never annoyed me. Um, yeah, and so in short, no, I don't. I don't think it's problematic. No, no. Um, but uh, I, I feel like um, if you say that you you yourself. Um, identify as a folk musician if, if people would ask you uh what kind of musician are you or what kind of music do you play is, is that what you would answer it, yeah i think you probably do the same thing it partly depends who's asking the question if i meet a friend of my parents at a party and i know that we're just being polite i say i play the accordion and i play folk music and that's yeah. my i hate default. those situations by the way <laughs> <laughs> but but you, it's good to have a default short answer. It is. You know. It is. I should work um, on that. And, and when you when you meet other musicians, especially ones that that might be interested in more than one thing, and uh, then you can you can kind of get into it. Um, we're we're all quite bound up with self identity, I think, and it, it is. Um, it seems very important to us to know what what we think we are and have an answer to that question and i suppose i could feel returning to how you feel you paid your dues i feel very confident in saying i am a folk musician and i play the accordion like i feel like those things are unequivocally true at this point in terms of how i spent my life um because it's important to us really that we feel confident in whatever it is we describe ourselves as i tend not to describe myself as a composer and I think part of that is to do with how you feel is is where your where your training lies, you know. And so I do tend to say folk musician. And then if people want to talk about it for ages, obviously I'm delighted to. But but on the whole, that's what I say. Um, but do you think it shapes your work as a composer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think one of the big things for me is is uh i i don't have a great relationship with written music it's not something i've used very much as a a player and so when it came to writing music for other people it wasn't a tool that i knew how to use very well and wasn't able to provide very well for other people you know the parts that i were was writing were often but much harder to play than they need to be but also often much harder to read than they need to be because i, I wasn't I didn't understand how people needed to see it. Um, and so that's one aspect. But the other is that I th- I started writing tunes through my fingers. And I think that that's quite common in folk musicians. It's not true of everyone. Uh, Aidan, uh, I think, writes tunes in his head. Almost all my tunes come from my f- fingers. And that's quite limited because you fall into muscle memory and... So, sorry, uh, can you I'll... can you describe the difference between those two approaches? Oh, sorry, but... yeah. So, uh, tunes tunes don't appear in my head, and then I 
write them down or, or, or um, I don't write them down or, or play them. I sit and I improvise until I find something that I like. And, um, and at that point, I record it or remember it. Um, but the problem with that is that you you return to the patterns that your fingers naturally find. Yeah. Um, so you, your tunes can end up quite similar, and um, and I think that could also it's also true of harmony that I I return to sequences that that I've used a lot, and so I I think that can that can be problematic and. But it's it's sort of still how I write music. I tend to sit and play either the accordion or the piano until I find something that I like, and I I am quite uh, reactive when I when I I I get excited when I hear something that I like. Um, but the but the thing doesn't pop into my head in a in a bolt of lightning, um, which I think it does <laughs> for some people. Um, yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Just write it down. Um, and so I look for various ways to f to find uh, to push myself out of out of that. Um, and Lau have have gone through various techniques for improvising under quite closed parameters as a way of writing tunes. So uh, we we would try. Played all twelve key. We had various randomizers, you know, so something that that chooses a, a key, something that gives you a one in twelve, and something that gives you a one in two for a major and a minor, and then you and then a time signature, and then you improvise in these parameters and in an attempt to push you out of uh, of writing the same tunes over and over again. Um, okay, so you kind of improvise a tune to get tunes together. You compose tunes together. That's how you work. Uh, yeah so so other than the very first album where we we sort of turned up with some tunes that we'd written individually we write everything together um mm. which is very very slow yeah but, yeah i can um, definitely relate to that like so much quicker when someone in the band shows up with a tune as you say and because yeah then you all just have to react to to that specific tune but when you have a band where you kind of but the the thing is that you jam out a tune that it's such a time consuming process usually but uh the outcome is very very different from like it's kind of the the collection of everybody's ideas rather than just one person which can be a huge strength to to get the, to find the sound of a band I, I i find yeah absolutely and and so what has happened over time is where we used to turn up with 32 bars and we would start turning up with with one phrase to get us started or later on when we were thinking more about sound even just one one sound that somebody had found on a pedal or whatever um and you start playing around with that and other than giving you the the sum of its parts in a different way which which i agree with you it, it does the other brilliant and beautiful thing that it does is it removes anybody's sense of personal ownership and that is a very freeing because it means that nobody feels precious about this idea. They haven't personally gone away and had a notion for what this thing could be and then the band want to do something different. It And nobody's pushing it to go on a record or be played because they wrote it or or whatever. It, it, it Once it once you don't... F well, once nobody feels they own it personally, you can be much braver with what you do with it and whether you just throw it away or... Um, and I think all of that is is really strengthening um and i've only ever really experienced that with lao or i i i've haven't been in another group that has ever got to a point that feels that things are collectively owned in the same way really now that's a that's a very interesting um uh, aspect uh and i find that the bands that i uh enjoy the most listening to are bands like lao where i feel um, that the the band isn't just one person's vision. It's just uh, it's a collection of ideas that greater than the sum of the parts or uh, whatever. 
like like one of my all-time favorite bands are uh, the ban <laughs> yeah you know yeah um even though the tunes are mostly written by robbie robertson it, the 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 whole it you can hear that they have just jammed jammed it out like it's not like he sh- he showed up with an arrangement and everything he probably showed up for some lyrics and some chords and and everyone just put their unique and you can hear okay that's probably coming from yeah it's um it's unique and as you say uh it also makes the band feel more like a band which uh is a huge challenge like speaking from personal experience being in countless bands over the years it's it's really hard to to get the the band to to feel an identity together as a band and prioritize um because what often happens is the band becomes one person's or two two people's project and the rest they don't feel the same uh, connection to the band and it can be hard keeping the thing together for years and years because oftentimes it takes years for a band to really break and so do you have any more insight onto how like you're able to keep a band like Lau going well, year after year one, after year one thing that that I think was hugely useful to us and I, and I see in the musicians younger than us that they play in lots of bands like because right now in Scotland at least because we have at the Conservatoire an opportunity to study traditional music, which is fantastic. We've got a lot of young musicians, brilliant young musicians living in Glasgow. And they are quite understandably very excited to be living in this place with lots of other brilliant young musicians. And so they start like 15 bands that all have this kind of crossover of personnel. And and, and they're all really good. But the problem is that they don't have this one thing that is exclusive and and that they give their attention to and Lau have always done other projects but during the first six seven years certainly we didn't have another we would all go and do set you know Chris was still playing with Kate Rusby and uh, Aidan was was doing all sorts of things but but in terms of another another band where you're sharing that that kind of core of Oh, I've had this good idea. Where's it going? It's like it's always going to Lao. And that is really hugely valuable. And I understand also that partly people are in lots of bands, so they've got enough gigs to live. I I understand that, you know. Uh, and you could go to the same venues three times a year if you're in yeah, three different bands, <laughs> you know. So it, it, it it's a criticism only in that I feel that... that some of these bands don't get the opportunity to be what they could be because musicians are spread very thin. It's not that I don't understand why why people do it. Yeah. Um, but if it's possible, it is a really uh, it feel it's a bit like being married. You kind of it, it has a, a very a very certain feeling about it, and you know it. I think those things are maybe more vital right at the beginning of a of a band where you're finding out what it is. Now, Lao takes up much less of our lives than it well, certainly in the last year and a half, but it's a smaller part of our lives now. We we do more other things, but now we kind of know what Lao is and jumping back into it when we meet isn't so hard. But we've got fifteen years behind us of of doing that. So it, it um Yeah. It it's it's Putting in that investment in in a project in uh, yeah. over a number of years to kind of establish it as a sound and as a unity and to the point where everyone knows each other in and out and and feels um, yeah. that they can trust each other in different ways and like it takes time it's like with a, like with any other relationship I guess yeah and and I think the the vital thing is to have enough time to throw away enough ideas because. Nobody only has great ideas. And when you see musicians that you find really inspiring, it feels like they only have good ideas. They don't. They have 100 shit ideas for each good idea, but they have enough time to th- throw them throw them away, I think. And that that's only possible if you can give it that that space. And we were also very lucky that at the right at the beginning of Lao, we made this decision not to do a gig for a year. Oh, really? and, huh. Yeah, so we played in Aidan's kitchen until until it was like, yeah, cool. This is a this is a gig and an album 
now and, and we know what it is. And so we went through a lot of throwing things away and a lot of process and and it didn't feel... And I, I mean, of course, I remember our first gig, but it, it didn't feel uh, like we had to learn much on the stage. Uh, but we were a different stage. You know, as we were in our late 20s. We'd all, we'd all done 10 years of gigs. It wasn't, you know... Um, it was it was a different thing, maybe anyway. To like the first bands I was in, which was just shambolic, you know. Mm. Um, um, so, but it's yeah, interesting. That, Sorry, go on. No, no, go. I was just going to say that what you're what you're saying about the, the the financial aspect of it, like I can certainly relate to. I mean, the, especially the Norwegian folk scene, traditional music scene is so small that it's hard to get by with just one project because as you said, once you've toured all the festivals and all the clubs, you have to wait a couple of years before you can come back. So you need to come back with a different band for the next uh, season, basically just to, to keep it financially viable. But I also yeah. find that, that, that I feel like this whole uh, model of working, it doesn't really allow me to get to work hard enough on the projects that I'm in because, uh, well, I'm trying. Uh, this is my job, so I need to bring in money somehow. But I feel like there's a lot of, or at least in many of the projects and bands I've been in over the years, I feel like there's so much unfulfilled um, um, potential in that. Or if you could just work with this band a bit more concentrated and like focused for a couple more years, this could become something really unique and really great. But since uh, I need to bring in money, I have to have all of these different projects going on at the same time, which I feel like stretch, stretching is stretching me a bit too thin. Yeah, I I completely understand. And I think, I, well, for a start, I think a lot of people feel this way. Um, and, and then how to combat that is, one of the things that we did was try to see, okay, so we, once you have a band and it is, you know, in financial terms, a, a band is a, a company once it's a professional band, you know. Um, and and what what else can you do with that um, in terms of other projects? But we also started doing bits of curation and, uh, and commissioning other people and tried to find things that we could do that didn't take our focus away too much which is hard to do, but I mean, you know, this podcast that you're doing, this this has professional implication for you. Like this is, all of that is useful because it doesn't, it doesn't take you out of professional folk music. You know, there there are all these other avenues, but sure. I I do think it's really hard, and I also think that we were lucky that we came in just when CDs were still worth money, yeah. and so, you know, two two thousand. 2005, we started playing in Aiden's Kitchen. The, and the first record came out in 2007. And at that point, it was still worth the record company putting a bit of money into helping us make a record that in a, in a real studio that, that could sound good, but also advertising that record. And that really turned the band into a, a job because somebody yeah. was prepared to invest that money. And it's hard to see how you would do that now um in recorded music you know how somebody else would invest in your in your folk band and I, although i don't have an answer to that i do think that these other opportunities that have appeared since then of um uh, of self-publishing in, in so many different ways um you know podcasts didn't exist in 2007 and and home recording wasn't the same sort of you know um so there are other things, but it is much harder to see how the, that old model of you make an album, it's worth a record company making it, investing in it, and then you go on tour and you sell enough of them to for it to make sense. We haven't quite solved the, that problem. Like, what no. do we replace that with, you know? No. Um, so, th like, lots of things there. Like, I, I find it interesting what you said about uh, using the band, like how you were kind of using Lao the concept of Lao and doing different things, uh, like um, commission pieces and and um, collaborating with other artists. That's that seems to be like one route to go to keep the band as a unity together and still 
um, explore or still have something new because you, al you yeah. always need something new, right, in this environment, now even more yeah. than ever. So finding ways to do something new within the context of something you have already going on, I think yeah. is a good advice. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I don't, do you know the band The Unthanks? Do you know that, the band? Uh, uh, what? The Unthanks. Uh, they're two mm, singing so sisters from the, the northeast of England. Okay. Um, but they're very good good friends of Lau and and we kind of appeared at the same time and and we both i think adopted these these similar models of like i they don't play in any other back you know they're very focused it's, it's that thing and they're looking at as many different avenues to keep that i mean it, it sounds awful to talk about money but at the end of the day if it if you can't turn it into a job you have to get a different job and if once you've got a different job you just can't do enough gigs for no. for a band to, to get to be great because a band is really good when it does enough gigs together and so um you do have to look for these avenues i think that this is less true of there are so many brilliant folk musicians that don't do it for a job you know uh and I'm not for a minute saying it's the only route, but I think for a band, it it is very difficult if you can't have the availability of those of those people because because they're doing other things. Um, sure, and and so looking at yeah, looking at other avenues becomes important. But how, like you just described, the financial model of the the folk music industry and well, the music industry is generally like um, almost 20 years ago but how how do you how, how does it even work today like uh like uh, yeah what this, what what, is... what what should people be doing in in this day and age and where do you yeah. think it's going it's a big question but interesting to get your take well i think so if we look at this podcast for example you know this podcast is costing you very little to make but presumably it it doesn't monetize at the at the other end either so like that it, it doesn't cost anything, but it doesn't make anything. But what it does do is is increase profile, and all of those things are really useful, and those things are now available to us in a completely different way. But what we have to do now is to work out how... Okay, if you've increased the number of people that pay attention to you on the internet, that's great. But how do you get money out of them to continue doing what you're doing? And people are trying various things you know people obviously try patreon and people are trying to by putting adverts on their podcasts or people are are trying by having enough merchandise available that actually if you have got fifteen thousand instagram followers and and a thousand of them buy your t-shirt actually that's kind of all right there are all these little models but i think none of them have run if we look at what had happened before with selling records from let's say the from after the war, you know, say from from the mid forties, uh, there's a lot of time there. People and, until it suddenly stopped. You know, I, I suppose uh, about 2010, it probably it, it stopped being a model like that. Uh, there was a lot of time before 2010 and 1945 to work out how those models came, and people do adapt really quick. But right now, I do feel that we don't know the answer. Um, but it's but a very look, sorry. So yeah, so, 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 the things you just described with like selling T-shirts and finding adverts on your podcasts or whatever, like it's uh, it seems to work for some people. But like one, you need a lot of attention because only, usually only a fraction of the people paying attention to will actually invest money in you when they can yeah. get your content or your music for free anyway. No, I I agree I, and. But, however, I do notice that people are going to gigs, at least here. I don't know what the COVID rules are in Norway, but here gigs are are doing well, which is yeah. interesting. And so musicians have suddenly become very busy, which is great. Um, and so the appetite is there for live work. Um, I think people that were teaching a lot actually during lockdown here 
I think some of them being able to go online, their their revenue went up because suddenly they're teaching people all over the world. I do think there's something there. One of the things that Lao do from time to time is we do masterclasses and, and uh, we did that online for the first time and there are people in in America and in Germany and it's like, okay, right, well, this is interesting because these people have paid to be here and, you know, this is, this is making money. Um, there does seem to be more music because there's been because there's so much tv especially i think being made right now for a certain sort of musician there's there is more work and i think sorry tv no there's more television being made i think right now than or or internet tv you know i think um and i think you know it's mostly made by massive you know it's been made by amazon and apple and uh, and netflix because you know i i it's all at the multinational end of it all, but but it's happening and musicians are getting paid. Um, so I th- I think that there are things emerging that we're able to do from home in addition to, to gigging that when we could work out how to stabilise it will be useful. I think there's a big problem in how music was put on the internet in the first place that we haven't got over in no. that I don't I don't quite know how but it felt like big record companies at the beginning of Spotify and Apple Music either didn't really believe it was going to be as big as it is or made deals that that I don't know about and don't understand that meant that this music is essentially free to the end user which has fucked us all a little yeah. bit you know because it's like well you could not put it on spotify and nobody will listen to it uh, and you feel a bit we're we're all a bit stuck there you know yeah and unless um and i think it's difficult even for individual musicians to go well i just won't put my music on spotify because so much of that huge back catalog that people are so interested in is already there that it has become the place where people go to listen to music. Sure. Um, so, I mean, here in the UK, where they tried to change the legislation about how streaming rights work and how people get paid, that that might work. You know, they, if if it would be great if people carried on listening to as much music as they do, and the musicians got paid at at the end, that would be great. Mm. But that actually requires a change in law, I think, before because Spotify aren't going to offer it up. You know, why, no. why would they? And I don't think that even if there was a kind of organised labour strike amongst musicians and, we, and they all went, we're not going to do it, I don't think that would help because it, the big stuff is all signed signed away already, you know, and, and the corporations yeah. aren't going to do it. So, um, yeah, I, th- I that, think that's... That, that was the thing I was trying to uh, get into just a while ago there because... Uh, back when you started off, you could actually make money from recorded music. So you had, at, at least as a band, you had several uh, spurs of income. Like, uh, yeah. But but these days, like, you have to make a record just to get the gigs, and you rely almost solely on the gigs and I don't know some merchandise or whatever to supplement. Like, it's so dependent on the gigs, and it. I mean, it really uh, hurt all of us musicians, obviously, when the pandemic hit. But um, but I also feel personally relying a lot on on the gigs to get paid to get money yeah uh, it just yeah, feels absolutely. very vul- vul- vulnerable like uh, i mean it's fine now but what if i don't want to play 100 gigs a year when i'm 50 i don't know like um yeah uh, i i agree and um i, I just three weeks ago laos tour was cancelled at the last minute because one of the band got covid and yeah it, it just you goes go. you know and and um and so that insecurity is very clear and that makes promoters insecure and, and it makes us insecure. But what but what I am seeing a resilience in audiences. And so that that is great and that obviously is is something joyful because one of the things that you wonder when you stop gigging is like, will anybody ever go, you know, how much do people really care about music? They really do, you know. They so do, that yeah. that's good. Um I don't know. I I, you know, yes, I, I know what you're saying about doing 100 gigs a year when you're 50, and and being much 
closer to that point than you. It's something that I think about and um, and try and find other things. You know, I also want to be in the house with my children and stuff like that, you know. So um, so you look for other things. Uh, but there are other there are other things, you know, um, and and a lot of them are to do with writing, really, for me. Um, yeah, I, I think mean, it's harder if you don't write, you know. Yeah, because I mean, you have uh, established a career as a composer, um, at, like in addition to being a performer. So, could you say a little bit about that? Like, how did that happen, and um, how does that work out? Uh, how um, is that a big, yeah, big part sure. of your musical life at the moment? Yes, it is. Yeah, um, writing music and um, writing words has become a big part of my life since the pandemic, which um, is nothing to do with writing music, really. I don't think it. It just something that that I suppose when you're looking for these other when you haven't got any gigs, you know, you try some stuff, and if people. Uh, it, people want to take it then then you maybe do a bit more but in terms of writing music i i think i started like a lot of folk musicians writing trying to write reels trying to write jigs um i've had this conversation with karen tweed quite a lot actually it's really hard to write a traditional tune sure uh, I, that you know that sounds that feels like it fits into the idiom and the sort of tune that people might play in a session and i've never i've never succeeded you know no. uh <laughs> um and um, and there are people that do. There are people that write these great tunes, and pe they get almost inf the composers. It's it's almost a measure of how well they're written that the composers get forgotten so quickly. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> and you, you see them on an album. It's like it, traditional. It's like, no, that's not that's not traditional. Alan McDonald wrote it. You know, uh, only <laughs> maybe twenty years ago, but it, it's gone. You know, it's off into the. Um, and I love that. I think that's it's a, it's a wonderful thing, um, but. But it's not a word. I don't know. I I just haven't. I've never managed to to nail those things. So my process has has been much more about conceptual ideas. So I would like to do something with a with a brass ensemble and some electronics, and so you have that kind of idea, and then I play around with notes for a long a long time until it it happens. Um, in terms of how you turn that into a job, uh, I don't know. We're very lucky in Scotland, at least, that that there is public funding, and uh, although it gets harder, you can you can look at ways to make projects and uh, and get them funded. The the massive thing that I've learned is about the role of production, and I don't really mean music production. I mean essentially project management. That if you want to do that, if you want to be a composer. That's great, but ultimately that music has to go somewhere, or it 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 is not of value. And even if, if you know, if its value is, uh, it's fiscal. People want to pay for tickets. That's one thing. If its value is cultural and it's public, that that's another thing. But but either of those have to be facilitated somehow. And either you do that yourself, or you find somebody that can help you. And that's been the biggest thing f for Lau and for me is working out how to make things happen because until that happens it doesn't really matter how good you are and it's it's a bit like talking talking about the band as a business it's like it seems so it's like it's anti-art to talk about organization and in a way it is but at the same time it's it's actually impossible to do anything so uh sometimes you know young young musicians that would like to be doing kind of broader projects get in touch with me and go how do you get to that Point. And I think the single biggest thing that people don't realise is, A, you probably need some help. You probably need a producer, a project manager, and those people exist. Like there are people that can't write music, can't play music, that that I think musicians, we're so surrounded by music, music we take that as a given. We think that's the bit everyone can do, but how, how, do, you, how do you do the shows, you know? And it's like, mm. well, there are these people that would love to be involved in in making making things happen but that don't have a, a immediate output themselves that they don't make the thing and so so who would these find... people be like uh, festival organizers uh, producers yeah or the people that become festival organizers yeah so i suppose the people that you meet that that are maybe volunteering at festivals because they want to 
they want to find that next step. We don't have many arts production courses here in the UK. Um, most of the producers I know have come through uh, working in box offices in theatres or working in press departments or more recently working in social media departments for for big festivals or, or for cultural organisations of one sort or another. Um, and... And their role is creative, and if you can find a, a relationship with people that that feels symbiotic and, and where you both get to contribute something, it's sort of like a band, except that one person is writing the music and, and, and deciding what the kind of piece of work is artistically, and the other person is working out how we actually make that happen so that it can exist without... You, you just go bankrupt doing it or nobody turning up or, you know, these these other things. Um, and so I would say, you know, if you're looking for those people, talk to the people you meet. Every time you go into a venue, there are some people in there that are interested in working in the arts. And it's worth just meeting those people. And if you're on the lookout for people with certain skills, don't, don't be scared to talk to them about projects because it... Um, it's really hard on your own. I think you know they're sure. different bits of your of your brain, and and they both take up a lot of of time. So, um, I was lucky that the first things that I did under my own name were commissioned by an opera company in in England, and they have a very supporting network. You know they've they've got enough staff to help you to do it, and they have a an inbuilt audience, which means they know some people are going to turn up and and see it um and i learned a lot from them about what you need to do to to make things happen um i don't know how i would have done the first one if there hadn't been someone to to no. help me because it's that not it's of, a bit so good no i was gonna say that's that's probably your uh, like um springboard or your starting point yeah, to get to uh, to get new opportunities and yeah yeah uh, absolutely but the thing that i have noticed now is people have realized the power of documentation like there were a lot of things that happened in the early 2000s great projects that there is no film of and no. so um i mean it was harder and more expensive to film things but but part of the result of that is that lots of things only happened once because you can't then show it to someone else and go would you like this at your festival and we've learned no. we've learned that you know um and so some of that becomes easier and and you can edit these trailers or, or examples of your work yourself. Like some of these things really have become easier, you know. Um, so I think all of that is good. Um, but also be a little bit free to follow the... If you want to be a composer, take, take whatever job it, there might be, really, because there aren't, there aren't that many, at least... You know, you can't you can't be too choosy. So if you see an opportunity for something, uh, it's worth doing it. The first time I wrote, I haven't done much film work, but the first thing that I did, I did completely for free for some film students that got in touch, and it's worth doing that because then at least you've got a bit of film with your music on it, which is infinitely more than than not having that. You know, um, yeah. And also, you can find these people now on the internet so quickly. You know. I'm sure there's. It wouldn't take long to go through a load of student filmmakers' work and go, "That looks great," and get in touch. And I mean, who doesn't want free music? You know, so um, I think that that helps. Sure. Well, that's all good advice. Um, so I don't want to take up your whole day here. Uh, I think we touched on a lot of interesting stuff. Um, I've got in the habit of asking some quick questions in the end, uh, sure. just to get some, uh, um, yeah, let's see what happens. The first thing I'm wondering is, uh, what are you currently listening to? Oh, great. Uh, I've been listening a lot to an album called uh, by The Soft Pink Truth, okay. uh, which is one, one half of a band called Matmos. Um which and the album is called. There's a lot of words in the whole thing. the The album is called "Shall We Go On Sinning So That Grace May Increase." It's quite hard to say, <laughs> um, but I've been enjoying that that album very much. 
cool. I'm also on a trad YouTube clips f- uh, WhatsApp group which okay. <laughs> prov- uh, with my brother-in-law and a few other people, and which provides really great quality gems. Uh, yeah, um, a couple a week of like. Often brilliant musicians I've never heard of. So, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, that's been YouTube, good. YouTube is great for that, isn't it? Like, I remember oh, when yeah. I started up tra- trying to learn trad music like 10 years. I mean, YouTube still was still there, but um, that, 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 that that's about the point where the whole thing really got started and all the old clips from the, the Irish television programs from the 70s and 90s and yeah. 80s came on. And there's, yeah, really, um, really a great resource. And... And it's nice to have a group like you're describing there because there's a lot of garbage as well, obviously. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. really finding finding the gems is um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, and people it's, it's find some really some really great stuff, and and like I say, often players that I've never heard of. Uh, I think many of whom aren't playing professionally. You know, I think they they probably have jobs, but yeah, they're also brilliant. So yeah, that's mm. been good. Cool. Um, I'm also wondering, like, what is your favorite art form outside music? Oh, interesting. Um, film is the thing I, um, yeah, I would say film. Yeah, uh, that's the perfect art form. Contained... Isn't it? it has everything. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like that, it felt like a bit of a rubbish answer because it's like, well, there's so much in film, but. Um, I consume more film than than literature, which I feel terribly guilty about, but but is the truth. Um, and I think yeah, because I understand a bit a, a bit more about how it, how it's made, it's quite nice if you know a little bit about how something's made, you can appreciate it in a different way. I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, that's that. That's I find that to be. I'm, I'm trying to get more into like uh, paintings and traditional art these days because I find it very fascinating, but. I feel there's a barrier of entry there for me because I, I feel like I need to know a bit more about the composers. No, sorry, <laughs> the artists and <laughs> and sort of the the history and like, uh, um, yeah. But as it, I guess it's like that with all music. Like trad music just sounds apparently the same to people not um, yeah, into yeah. it. So uh, yeah, and and I I went to the theater with a friend of mine recently who said he always struggles with the theater because, uh. It's so full of. We have to suspend disbelief in a very strange way in in live theatre, and actors yeah. have to project to fill a space. So it's not natural, and it's quite a strange form. And if you're not used to it, it it it's hard to get caught up in the story because of it, the strangeness of the form. And I think that that just, it's just the same with when when people hear Irish music for the first time, and it's like all the tunes sound the same. And it's like, well, yeah, in the scheme of things, they do all sound the same. But then you spend enough time in it. And you feel the nuance, and you start ignoring the uh, the things that you that seem like they're cliche. Cliches come from the fact that forms are built on on re- repetition. Like people keep doing the same things, and until you can hear through that into the subtleties, it. I played a brilliant guitarist friend of mine. I played him Carl Hayden, played the banjo, yeah. and it's like, check this out. This is. Can imagine, you know, and it's like that guy has to stop it with the triplets. There's far too many triplets, and it's like <laughs> I can see why you think that if you don't live within Irish music. There's a lot of triplets in tenor banjo playing, you know, but it. But once it feels like part of the form, they don't pop out at you. They feel like they they flow, you know. Yeah, yeah because yeah, I know what you mean, and they probably they they that's what they hear. They hear notes and triplets. They don't hear the tune. Yeah. In exactly, the same way yeah, as yeah. you would if you were more familiar with it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, final question. Um, what, let's say you didn't play accordion or keyboards, like what, which instruments would you be playing? I feel better already. Um, if I didn't play the accordion... I would be drawn to the cello. Already. Nice. Because it feels like it, you can play it on your own, but you can play it in various groups, you know, like there are lots of opportunities to play and there's so much repertoire. 
Um, it, but it's not too high. I've always thought that the violin doesn't go down very low. Other than that, it's an almost perfect instrument. But mm. um, so the cello, yeah, I think the cello. Yeah, that's that's a nice answer. I really like the cello myself, and as you say, yeah, yeah, it has the the bottom, but it you can it still play virtuos enough on, yeah. on on the higher higher end of the instrument. So yeah. I would be so but, out of tune. I don't know about you. I've never played an instrument I have to keep in tune myself, you know. So <laughs> if I did play the yeah. cello, especially up the top end, it would be brutal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I play a fair bit of instruments myself, but I don't think I'll ever get serious with anything with a bow and no frets. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm too old <laughs> for that stuff. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really nice chatting with you. Lots of interesting things coming in here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, great, a great pleasure to speak to you. And if people want to uh, um, keep up to date with your projects and what you're up to, like, what would be the best uh, way to, uh, Ma- to do that? Martin Green Music. That's that's where to go. Uh, yeah, do a quick search. Martin Green Music should, should get you great. there. Cool. Okay, I uh, hope you have a great week Brilliant. and I uh, hope to see you around at some point. Magic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folk Music Podcast. As always, you can find links and additional information on the show website at thefolkmusicpodcast.com. And as I mentioned in the intro, you can also follow the show on social media. Uh, We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Folk Music Podcast. Now, it's getting dangerously close to Christmas, and I hope you're excited for that, if you're into that sort of thing. I know myself, I'm very much ready for a holiday with the family now. But um, there'll be at least a couple more episodes of the show coming out before the new year. So uh, please watch out for those. But uh, that's all for today. So um, until next time, I wish you a great week. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.